Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, what is it, April 14th? April 14th? Yep. That's right. Uh, Today we have an interview with Tesla Charts TC, uh, and that'll come after our news stories. Great interview. Thank you, TC, for coming on the show. But before we get to the interview, what's your story? Mine is private equity. Uh, they are in trouble because you know the economy is slowing down. Everyone's been in trouble, but they're such a large part of the economy that uh, Bethany McLean wrote a nice long piece for Vanity Fair outlining how they are kind of the too big to fail uh, of this economic crisis. Interesting. And then I'm going to be talking about Dorsey's Start Small initiative, um, which was in the news this week as well. Then we have current state of FinTwit. Uh, oh, Option Kings is back because we bought a put, right? Yeah, one put. Don't spoil it. Uh, it's right. yeah, so exciting. But uh, Singular, yeah, so not puts, put. Yeah. Uh, and we'll kind of talk the thesis behind that. And then as always, we have our hot water, fuck, Mary kill, and our anecdotal evidence. Oh, I got a juicy one too for anecdotal. Oh, exciting. Uh, yeah, let's go. All right, welcome in. Um, I'm going to kick things off with my story for the week. Jack Dorsey announced this week that he's moving $1 billion of, what's well, $1 billion with a B, of square equity or 28% of his wealth to his new Start Small LLC, um, which that's kind of a suck it to net worth Twitter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there is evidence that some people like, I think it was either Sergey Brin, one of the Google people did something like this, uh, but they ended up just getting the tax benefits and then never actually starting the charitable things. But Jack, I think you have written down here, has an open Google Doc. Uh, so he's doing it publicly. He's already started stuff. So I think they really can't. Uh, if, you can, if you complain about how much he's giving or anything like that, I think you're, you're just a little stubborn here, right? Yeah. I mean, 28%, you know, it's, I think... Less than five is kind of the threshold where you're like, really? That's 4%. That's like me giving 800 bucks or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It shouldn't really be a news story unless it's a you know, large part of the wealth or something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so he did so through a series of tweets. And so the goal of Start Small is to initially fund COVID-19 relief and afterwards shift to girls' health and education uh, along with universal basic income. Um, he is keeping all the equity he sells on a on a Google Doc, like you said. So he's being trans pretty transparent with it, so anyone can access it. Um, although, if you're listening, Jack Dorsey, I tried to access it mobily today and it did not work. So maybe get on that. Um, had to go to my computer, but uh, yeah, he's probably listening. So right. Um, so far, he's made two transfers though. So the first one was a $100,000 donation to America's Food Fund. And the second was a $2.1 million donation to the Mayor's Fund of LA, which is helping domestic violence victims, which um, as we've seen on Twitter, it has seen an increase due to the whole stay at home order. A lot of people have toxic homes and you know, domestic violence is usually from the homes. Uh, so he's trying to aid in those two. Um, and then he answered the question, why is he selling Square Square shares instead of Twitter? And he said simply he owns a lot more Square, which is true. But if he was selling Twitter, do you think those activist investors would have had a problem with it? 
Mm, uh, I guess that's a tough question. You're saying if he sold the Twitter shares to do it, I, I really don't think they care. All they want is control of the company and then to get it to actually make as much money as it's worth as we've gone over before. We both think it's way undervalued, uh, at least the way they monetize it. So I don't think they really care. And Square is like 88% of his wealth or it was. Uh, so yeah, I mean, seems fine to me. Seems logical. Although you just, you brought up a good point. And he was, you know, what was it? Sergey Brenner, whatever, did this for the tax benefits. Um, so maybe these funds are fake funds, you know? Like, it's like, oh, he's being transparent with the, uh, I mean, it's a little conspiracy theory, but he donated to, what was it, Mayor's Fund of LA? That's maybe. Just an offshore, what if that's just an offshore account for him, you know? <laughs> it, it could, uh, you know, that's, that is possible, but I, I think people would call him out on that, I, you know you know what I mean? Like, since it's public, they can't hide who they're giving to and things like that. This is yeah. making it so if he was doing something fake, it'd be super easy for a journalist uh, or the charity organization to uh, call them out on it. So I, unless, I think unless it's they, Unless they got a benefit from it. Yeah, unless okay, he's, pay, he's paying off everyone. Yeah. Question though, are we in favor of this sort of billionaire tax avoidance if this is the sort of byproduct that comes from it? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It seems like it's a good thing. Uh, like in, you know, in a vacuum, it's a good thing, but, do we really want tech billionaires controlling a lot of where the money goes in our economy, who benefits, whether it's a good thing, whether, you know, whether they're giving to great organizations, like it looks like he's doing. Uh, I don't know if that's like the way we want it, like the inequality increases and then the way people benefit the 90 like percent or the people that are below the poverty line or in need benefit is if some billionaire thinks that they should decide that they get the money. Um, that doesn't feel very capitalistic to me or a de democratic system. Uh, but it looks, you know, he is rich and he has all this money and this is probably the best thing to do with it. Yeah, I think Scott Galloway had a good take on it on uh, Pivot this week. And something that is positive coming from this is that he is like what? Like in his 30s, he's not... He's probably almost... He's in his 40s, definitely. He's in his 40s, okay. Uh, I mean, he could have easily waited till he was 80 or retired to be doing this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, he's like one of the best at donating, um, at least if he falls through and all this stuff. Uh, but yeah, you could complain about a lot of the other billionaires who would be fine donating 99% of their wealth, uh, but they just choose not to for whatever reason. I will say we've had a rather pessimistic take or stance on Dorsey. I think the way that he's handled coronavirus and this crisis we are amidst has changed my stance on him. He's still a bad CEO of Twitter, and he should be fired. I, and he should, yeah, you know what? Okay. And, he shouldn't yeah, take, and he shouldn't take vacations every week. If I really liked him and I thought he was that great, I probably would be a shareholder of Twitter. So I guess you are right on that. But I right now, I think he might be the right guy for the job for Square. Uh, maybe. Um, I mean, they're doing, seems like they're doing good stuff in the midst of this like downturn for a lot of their partners. They're trying to be active. So yeah, it seems like he's doing fine. Um, no complaints from me, I guess, but that's, okay, from, what's your uh, story? All right. Uh, my story is the private equity. Uh, they are part of this crisis since they are a large part of the economy. Uh, so Bethany McLean, who is one of the top finance writers, probably her and Michael Lewis are the top ones. Uh, she wrote about how PE, which is just the short term for private equity, is the underfollowed center of this crisis. 
So for a little context here, $2 trillion in taxpayer money is up for grabs. That is part of the new uh, stimulus bill. And lobbyists, you know, they're working overtime to try to get their companies or industries that part of it because a lot of companies are probably going to go bankrupt without it. Uh, you would think, though, that they would be fine because they have, quote unquote, $1.5 trillion in dry powder. And they have multi-billionaire executives. I think the Blackstone CEO is worth $17 billion. But McLean argues, and I think she's right, that these private equity firms will need a lot of money or else things will get bad. First big reason and probably the only one is that pension plans invest a lot in PE. Uh, one third of Blackstone's funds come from pensions. These fund retirement for American workers, firefighters, uh, college students, teacher, or college professors, teachers. It goes all the way down the line. Police officers, things like that. Uh, they could have their retirement plans ruined uh, if a lot of these companies or funds go bankrupt. So do you think that this should call for the, uh, you know, quote unquote, Dodd-Frank for PE, whatever that those terms may be, so these firms are better prepared for the next crisis? So the Dodd-Frank is like, that was like the financial crisis response, right? It was like the reform or whatever. It was for the banks. So the banks had all these new rules. They couldn't get over lever. They couldn't overextend themselves. And then that uh, has actually helped right now because the banks are in good shape. They can take in more money, taking a lot more loans. And they're, you know, when times are good, they're cautious. But when times get bad now, they have the opportunity to help out a lot of people by trying to fund, uh, you know, the businesses they're partners with. Huh. So, okay, question for you. What's the difference between private equity and venture capital? Uh, well, I have this as my next note. Uh, PE right. is different because they usually take over existing companies. It's not, uh, what would you call it, from like a startup at all. So VC is more startup and they usually borrow a lot to uh, fund them. So they take in a lot of debt. And they use that to uh, take over the companies in the process. But VCs, they just raise money, do a lot, you know, the seed rounds, the Series A, Series B, and that's just taking an equity stake. So PE is more debt and older companies and VCs is equity, in general, equity and younger companies. Huh. Huh. Yeah. It's like, now does private equity, are a lot of those deals like the whole company, like you're taking the whole company and owning yes. it? Yes. Okay. So say... Uh, there's a restaurant chain or something like that. This is kind of popular. I don't know what it would be. Say Wendy's uh, is struggling. Uh, they have you know some distressed debt or something like that. PE will you know lever like take on some debt, buy out the entire company, and then they don't have to be publicly traded anymore. But it's still part. You know, they, if they get all these profits, they can still return. You know, like uh, if they can turn the business around or something like that by giving them an influx of cash or whatever. You know, like a classic investment. Uh, they can turn things around, get a nice return, and give back the money to their uh, fund shareholders. Yeah, I haven't really studied enough about private equity, but obviously if there is this downfall that Bethany McLean talks about or there is this need for excess capital, we can't have like the, like the largest industries failing anymore. And so, I mean, are, do we just bail them out? Yeah, I don't know. I think they... Uh... We might have to at this point. She said that, I mean, the numbers look like we're going to have to. So we are in the era of low interest rates, which means that with these heavy debt acquisitions, it's helped them, you know, take on more debt and not have to pay down so much interest. And then the, actually the 08 crisis might have saved PE from their mistakes because they've had a nice decade here of really low interest rates. 
And then according to McLean and other sources uh, that are more connected to this industry, some of the companies have acquired so much debt that even a small slowdown would totally end them. So this is the portfolio companies within the PE firms. Uh, and then if they go bankrupt, the PE loses all that equity value, and then their funds perform terribly for the pensions and other organizations that have invested in them. Okay, so question. Let's say, so you said those pensions are invested in them. Do the pensions know that they're in private equity? Or do yeah, they- it's just like a deal. Like they make a deal. Okay, say I'm the state of California, uh, pension fund or whatever, whatever it's called. And we make a deal to invest $8 billion into your PE fund at Blackstone. Blackstone invests that money and then they pay out the returns uh, however many years down the line. And what, the $1.5 trillion or whatever in dry powder isn't enough to pay off the existing debt? Yeah, that's a confusing thing for me, uh, but I guess not. And it would seem like the dry powder is there for a reason so they can do a lot of you know, work here, uh, help their portfolio companies. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's weird to me. I mean, 1.5, you said what? They're, in total, private equity's got $4.1 trillion in AOM. And, uh, yeah, that's my next note here. So the past four years, PE has raised $500 billion each year, and now they have a total AUM assets under management collectively of $4.1 trillion. So they have $4.1 trillion, $1.5 trillion in dry powder, and they're struggling or need some sort of bailout. That's... That's what doesn't. That it's not. I'm not piecing that together. Yeah, I I would think that the whole point is that the dry powder is there to help in times of need. But I don't know. Uh, another note here for any more people that want to know some stats. PE now owns companies with 8.8 million American workers, so they collectively own like the salaries and stuff they're responsible for. 8.8 million workers and account for over five percent of America's GDP. And to top things off, they are still one of the organizations that charge. Two and twenty, so two percent fee, and then twenty percent on all returns, which is just crazy that that still happens. Twenty percent on all returns, or twenty percent on outperformance? No, that's how two and twenty works. Twenty percent of returns, two percent of fees, or what? sorry, two percent fee. Jeez, I've never heard of that. That's ridiculous. You've never heard of that? No, I've never heard of two, two and twenty. You yeah. serious? Yeah, I, I thought most fee based were like one percent. Nah, two and twenty. That's how they uh, under. That's how they all underperform. But all right, I mean, yeah, so you, one. I was going to ask you: Are you worried about P the private equity? Like, it seems like it could be the big banks that try to uh, you know catalyze a big crisis here. Is Bethany McLean like the only one writing about this, or is this like a thing that I just haven't been paying attention to? Uh, I think other people are, but she probably wrote the longest and most conclusive piece. And she said that it's kind of the start that if they don't get help, they could be in big trouble. I don't know. I, I don't buy the hype. I, I don't. don't <laughs> 1.5 trillion in dry powder is an insane amount, especially with 4.1 trillion altogether in AUM. That's like 40, that's like 30% of your portfolio's cash. Yeah, but there's a lot of debt. There's a lot of debt. Yeah, that's why you have 1.5 trillion in dry powder. All right. Well, I don't know. Uh, it seems like, yeah, I mean, there's, it's not publicly traded you know, entities, so a lot of it's just kind of a black box. Does Bethany McLean probably know more than me? Yeah, but I don't know. $1.5 that's a lot of money. Okay, um, current state of FinTwit. You want to go first? Yeah, sure. So I got one. Uh, I did a poll this week 
uh, should share buybacks be taxed at a 20% rate? And I got about a 50-50 split. My thought on that was um, I actually, I like responded to one of Cliff Asnes' tweets, which is kind of, it's weird that I can uh, respond to him because he's like a manager of $100 billion of one of the largest quant funds in the world. Uh, and he'll just like respond to a question I have if he, he tweets it. But besides that, I said, should tax or should buybacks be taxed the same as dividends if you believe that they are equal? He said, yes. He didn't say if they should both just not be taxed. But yeah, what do you think? Should uh, buybacks be taxed the same as dividends if they're technically the same thing, returning capital to shareholders? Are dividends 20%? Uh, it's taxed at whatever the... Uh, it's either long-term or short-term capital gains, I think, or maybe it's for corporations. It is like your net income. It's taxed like that. So maybe it's at 18% right now, but hmm. I'm sure there's loopholes and stuff like that. Yeah. I was going to say, so I was, I voted no on that poll that, uh, should it be over or under 20%? Basically I said under because long-term capital gains, isn't that at 15? Um, I don't know. I think it's a 10, it depends how much money you make, but corporations, it's not, it's not to shareholders at all. It's the corporation that would get taxed. Yeah. I would keep it. I would say, I would say keep it in line with like the dividend or the capital gains tax basically relatively in that ballpark. Just, but yeah, I wouldn't say 20% is ridiculous. Are, are buybacks not taxed at all? I don't believe so. That's why they're so popular now because t dividends are taxed um, as income, I believe. I don't know what the exact thing is, uh, but it's probably like 15, 20%, maybe a little more. Interesting. Okay. Um, any other things you got for Fintwit? Nope. Okay. I only had one thing here. Um, the GOAT is back, the real GOAT. I think last week I said the GOAT was back, um, but this is the real GOAT. Michael Berry has joined Fintwit. Um, I thought we talked about this last week. No. He came out I thought this week. I did. I, I thought I'm, I did. No, really? Yeah, wow. I'm confident. Maybe that was not on the show. I was just talking to you. Yeah, no, I'm pretty confident because I'm pretty sure you tweeted it this recent week. But um, he started it out with basically a tweet storm, and he is not happy about this stay at home, stay in place order. So I have a question: Do you agree with him that this was sort of preemptive by the government and wasn't really well thought out? I know he's had a lot of tweets surrounding sort of infrastructure. Um, since, but as far as the shelter in place order, do you kind of agree with them that, that it has serious flaws? Uh, I don't know, dude. I'm not smart enough to know that. <laughs> Sorry. Was this, not... was, was this what you were expecting from his Twitter? No. I thought he yeah. was the, I, I mean, from what I heard, he's the soft-spoken genius. Um, this does not play well, but a lot of people are different online, so yeah, dude, I have no idea. Like anyone that pretends to know uh, what should happen when no one knows uh, the right way to do things is just like is just being cocky um, and arrogant. And I think everyone that like tries to decide what we should do, like, come on, you guys, no one knows. So uh, I'm gonna stay say I don't know. I I was just hoping for a portfolio update, thesis yes. behind his decisions. Like, what was that? <clears throat> Didn't he used to just have a blog? Like, wasn't that his thing? Yeah, he was uh, one of the like 2000s era bloggers, old school, 90s, late 90s, stuff like that. That's what I would have wanted out of, his, out of his Twitter account. Um, Okay, but that's going to do it for current state of FinTwit. Oh, wait, we got to ask, is <clears throat> Tesla fairly valued this week? 
Oh, is that now? Uh, most certainly not. No, most certainly not. And you're yeah. about to hear why with our interview with Tesla Charts. Um, what did you like about the interview? Well, it was basically four parts. We introduced, you know, introduced him, said a few things about that. We uh, threw out some of the bull thesis to him. So he countered those, and then we talked about some of the underfollowed things, kind of the Solar City lawsuit. Uh, sudden unintended acceleration, things like that. And then we talked about maybe some of the projections that people have about where Tesla goes from here if their factory is closing. Uh, so it's basically the entire bear thesis. So I'd recommend it if you're long or short Tesla or is interested in the most controversial stock on the market. Right. That's what I was going to say. Whether or not it might be hard to listen to for some bulls, but if you're not clear on the bear thesis, he gives a pretty concise um sort of look and glance into that um, i think and i think it's fair too it's not anything like he's not attacking bulls or anything like that right um so go ahead give it a listen here you go Okay, today we are welcomed by TC Tesla Charts. Uh, you probably know him on Twitter at Tesla Charts, um, and we've got him on the show today. So, welcome on. Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. For a lot of people, and we're, we're obviously going to talk Tesla today. So, for a lot of people, um, they, you usually don't start with a dislike for Tesla. There's kind of a moment when it kind of hits you that maybe it's not what it seems to be. What was that moment for you? What was this uh, come to Jesus moment where you're, you kind of turned or pivoted on Tesla and took a different stance? Yeah. So first of all, it's great, great to be on and I appreciate the invite. And uh, I've, I've coined a phrase for the phenomenon that you just described, which is, as I call it, the, the realization. Um, and the realization happens when you happen to have a certain expertise and Elon Musk wanders into that area and then says a bunch of stuff that makes you pause and makes you question the person, the man. Um, and, you know, for me, I had a, had a favorable, if somewhat uninformed opinion of Elon for a long time. Uh, you know, when you walk through airports and you see his face on magazines and sort of he's, he's um, held up as this great innovator and entrepreneur and, and I had no reason to doubt it until 2016. Um, I had a, a as background, I should say, you know, I am anonymous. I run Tesla charts on Twitter. Uh, I, I do have a PhD in in one of the hard sciences, and I had a pretty good um, run in the corporate world, first as a scientist and then as a leader of scientists. And one of the areas I'd spent a lot of time in and became an expert in was solar technology. Um, and my sort of come to Jesus moment, as you say, or my, my realization was when um, Elon rolled out the now infamous 
solar roof, the Tesla solar roof as part of an uh, ongoing effort to get the solar city acquisition approved by, by shareholders. And so for the benefit of the audience um, that doesn't know the details uh, in October of 2016, um, Elon had a reveal, a product reveal, and uh, he displayed what he was calling the Tesla solar roof. Um, and based on my experience and my knowledge and many other people in the industry that I spoke to afterwards had the same opinion, um, that product that he held in his hand was fabricated. It was um, fake and it couldn't work. Um, couldn't work in the way he described it. It was very clear from the presentation that he had virtually no idea um, about the technical and market challenges to producing such a product, uh, let alone producing such a product profitably. Uh, and so I was just kind of dumbfounded. I, I had this positive impression of Elon Musk, the person and the innovator and the entrepreneur. And when I had heard at a party, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and, and they knew my sort of expertise in solar. And they said, hey, Elon Musk is going to reveal uh, a solar roof, roof tile. And, and I knew from personal experience, that was a very, very tough problem. And then when I watched uh, the YouTube video live uh, of him standing in front of that crowd, holding what I knew in the moment to be a fake solar shingle tile, I couldn't believe it. My, my jaw hit the floor. Um, and I could say that now that it was fake definitively because of basically the subsequent depositions and variety of lawsuits confirm it. Um, the product wasn't real. It didn't exist. And he stood up and pretended it did. And so whenever you hear somebody um, speak in your area of expertise and they speak profound nonsense, uh, it has a really, really big <laughs> impact on you. And so I was sort of startled. And then that sort of just led to me looking into the rest of the business and to every other vertical. And, and what you'll find is um, the collection of people that have come to have a pretty negative opinion about Elon and Tesla all have a, almost all have a very similar origin story, which is, you know, if you were a tunneling engineer and you see Elon standing in front of what is a basically small sewer tunnel claiming that he's reinventing transportation, um, it's hard to watch that presentation and then look at him the same after that. And it's, the same thing with people with an expertise in autonomy. It's the same thing with people with an expertise in automotive manufacturing, um, on and on and on. And so for me, it was the solar city, solar roof reveal. And uh, from that day on, um, not only uh, can't I look at him the same, but my life has actually changed because it ultimately led to the formation of Tesla charts and, and the rest of the story, which is beyond my wildest imaginations. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten, uh, the story has gone on for, I think, longer than many people have expected to. Uh, and it seems like more and more people are becoming to that realization, especially maybe healthcare tech people now uh, with the ventilator uh, and such like that. But why do you think, I mean, this is probably the most divisive company, maybe of the last 30, 40 years, maybe of all time. Why do you think that and Musk are so dis divisive? That's a great question. And um you know, your assessment of Tesla begins and ends with your assessment of Elon. Uh, it is a one-person company. Um, and quite cleverly, um, I think by design, uh, others say he's, you know, genuinely trying to solve important problems. He's selected important scientific and cultural problems for which most people don't have a, a deep level of expertise to draw an opinion. And or to partition between sort of what's sensible and, and what's nonsense. Um, and he's wrapped himself in the global warming, green energy um, veneer, which does two things. It sells hope to people 
Um, you know, the, the genius narrative is often a, is often a sign that you should look for if you're looking for uh, questionable companies. Um, you know, the, the genius narrative and the, and the cult-like leader, um, all of those signs are here. Um, so he has wrapped himself in the global warming flag and has positioned himself to be viewed as the savior, you know, the, uh, the ecological warrior of our time. Um, and that does two things. It, it builds this incredible fan base of what I think are largely ignorant people. In their ignorant in the benign sense that they don't understand what they don't understand. And then also because um, a bureaucracy is set up to very much try to support such enterprises, it allows them to get away with a lot of things that if, if he were running a coal business, he would have been stopped by regulators a long time ago. But because he has this veneer of, of green eco-warrior slash the cult of genius, which I think, and we can get into, it's all been created, um, literally purchased, um, you know, those two things I think are by design. And so if you were going to set out to, to um, create this mirage, uh, there'd be no better place to do it than in electric vehicles and uh, solar technology, et cetera, because the government really wants those things to succeed. Yeah. I think, I think that's spot on. There's like a lot of, uh, we're pretty, we're both pretty young um, and people our age with any surface level understanding of Elon is he's our savior. He's brilliant. He's, the engineer that's recreating the world. Um, uh, one, you said, uh, you said you were buying or not you, uh, Elon, like kind of buys the, uh, the cult of genius. Can you explain like maybe the origin on that or maybe the theories behind that? Yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, I, I like where you were going with, uh, with the young folks and, and I get it. Like I'm not judging people that have a superficial knowledge of Elon and are big fans of his because before I had my realization, um, I was in the same boat, you know, I had test driven a, or I had to drive in a Model S and it was, a, it was a nice car. The acceleration was amazing. The interior was a little cheap, if you ask me, but um, I had a favorable impression of Elon and this is a cool car and a cool brand. That impression was shaped. Um, so if you dig deeper, um, Elon is obsessed with controlling the media narrative um, around him. And, and for me, after watching the solar reveal, the next jarring moment was reading about how brilliant and innovative this was and all of these, you know, um, what I've come to know are basically mouthpieces of Tesla Electric and Clean Technica and Tesla Rati. Um, the articles themselves describing the solar roof were complete nonsense. And anybody with any knowledge in the field knew that this was never going to work and he was going to waste a lot of money and there had to be more of the story. And it turns out there was a lot more of the story. But to your original question, um, yeah. if you're willing to invest a lot of money in PR firms, you can get what look like basically honest reporting um, paid for, and he does. And I think the, a key part of the con, um, a critical, the most important part of the con is the crazy genius narrative. So um, even people that are ostensibly skeptical of Tesla always feel the need to start with, well, you know, Elon's a genius, but well, he isn't. So um, he often says dumb things, um, rarely says insightful things. And when you listen to him talk, this is not a man of deep intellect, he's not an engineer. Um, you used the word engineer earlier. He's not an engineer. The, the word engineer has a specific meaning. He's not one. Um, he's just created this um, mirage of genius as part of the con. Um, it's a key element of it. Without it, the whole thing would collapse. Um, yeah. That's just crazy Elon, the genius, pushing the boundaries because he's a disruptor uh -huh. um, is the classic excuse that he goes for. And if you read the history of, of Elon, and it's, it's well 
well written in books like um, Ashley Vance's book and then at Dina Meyer's most recent book, Ludicrous, um, he is obsessed with and becomes very irate with any negative media coverage whatsoever, um, which has led to some of his biggest mistakes. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. It's easy to surround ourselves with, I, I don't want to get clouded, like think everyone around me is thinking the same thing. It's easy to c- kind of confirm that bias, especially when you have stuff like Twitter. Um, so we've proposed a few counter kind of bull theories um, and see what you think about them. Uh, we're not bullish. So um, we tried <laughs> to come up with some. Yeah. Um, so the first one that we hear a lot is Tesla's more than just a car company. They sell solar panels, they sell uh, batteries and flamethrowers, whatever they want to sell, I guess. Um, are they more than just a car company or is are they automotive? Um, they're barely a car company. Um, so 92 or 93% of their revenue comes from automotive um, and including the servicing of automotive. They run a, a vertical model of basically their, their own dealers. Um, they don't make solar panels. That's another common misconception. Um, they resell solar panels imported, predominantly resell solar panels. And, and uh, I did a whole podcast with uh, Quote the Raven on that. Um, that's basically a, a structured finance business where they're taking tax credits um, and um, moving them from homeowners to wealthy investors who have losses to offset. Um, that's a whole podcast in itself, what the Solar City business was and why it had to be bailed out. Um, and then on the battery side, um, they make cells. Uh, sorry, they don't make cells. They repackage the cells into the, to the battery packs. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that um, they're mildly back integrated into an inferior battery technology, I guess that's slightly different than being an automotive company. But um, they are basically a negative margin, capital intense automotive company that makes low quality vehicles. Uh, in a tent and does a poor job servicing them. I should warn for all of these um, bullish theories you're going to get. <laughs> I've heard them so many times uh, and they are so um, robustly at odds with the truth that it's just like one giant gaslighting exercise. So I'm, but I'm very happy to, uh, to calmly rebut them all so that Tesla is a mediocre automotive company with a broken balance sheet. Right. Um, so I, I assume we will get a lot of answers like that. The second theory or sort of thesis that a lot of bulls stand behind is the autonomy part um, that I know a lot of people have said, well, they've got access to the most uh, data as far as like um, driving for self, uh, self-driving. Um, are they the leader in autonomous? Uh, is it going to come anytime soon? And also, what about this robo fleet? Is that ever a viable like idea? Yeah. So in the pantheon of Elon Musk nonsense, this is the by far um, the prize winner. Um, Navigant Research puts out uh, an annual assessment of all of the people in autonomy, and Tesla is dead last. Um, Tesla does not have sufficient sensor suites or computing technology in their existing fleet to reach. Anything beyond, in my opinion, and the opinion of several experts that I've gotten to know and spoken to, anything beyond level two, they talk about fleet miles. That's nonsense. Um, Those miles, uh, the data that they claim to be recording aren't being used uh, in any way, shape, or form that will allow them an edge. They are literally dead last. Uh, I would argue 
that autopilot and full self-driving are a giant liability for the company based on how much they've oversold it. They've been charging customers thousands of dollars for full self-driving vaporware since October 2016. Um, there are people who have leased a car, driven the car for the entirety of the lease and turn it back in and never had full self-driving. Um, they have an obligation to retrofit all of these cars um, with state-of-the-art computers if there's a new computer that comes out that they claim will be necessary for full self-driving. Um, autopilot um, has been way oversold. If you look at the NTSB and the comments that they've made at their recent board meeting, there's an ongoing regulatory dispute between the NTSB and the NHTSA. Um, I think not only don't they have a lead, I think they're dead last. And I don't view their autopilot technology as an asset. I view it as a liability. That's uh yeah, that makes a lot of sense if they've been selling it for almost five years now. Uh, one, so when someone like us, uh, a bear says that, you know, the valuation is like 10 times or sometimes even 20 times a traditional car company, a lot of the bulls counter and they say like, well, you know, it's like an iPhone. A Tesla is like an iPhone. They deserve a higher multiple because they have higher gross margins. Is that true at all? So um, where to begin? Um, an iPhone is not a car. Um, a car for the, so here's the sort of the, the Tesla conundrum. In order to grow into the valuation they're getting, they have to dominate the market. Um, so the world has to switch to EVs and Tesla has to have a dominant share. And um, an iPhone, the number of people who can afford an iPhone vastly exceeds the number of people that can afford a forty dollars or $50,000 car. That is basically a vanity purchase. Um, and so there's no question that there are some aspects of the Tesla consumer um, base that gives just enough mimicking to the way people were enthusiastic about Apple products that you could be excused for falling uh, for that logical fallacy. Um, and we're finding that out right now. So just for example, um, a long-standing counter-argument to the bull thesis in Tesla is that the legacy automotive manufacturers aren't participating because EVs are money losers. And once they're forced to do so, Tesla will lose. If you look what's going on in Europe in Q1, um, the iPhone is getting beaten pretty badly. Um, Tesla's market share just in the EV space went from something close to 40% in Q4 to something close to 7% in Q1. And there's a very good reason why that is. The EU has mandated through a um, penalty scheme that the other OEMs basically finally start selling high quality EVs in the market. And when there is a wide variety of choices to make, consumers are flocking towards legacy automotive makers that have a brand, that have a warranty, that have the ability to service it. Um, and you see Tesla's market share collapse. And that's not because of COVID, that's market share. So, you know, presumably COVID is impacting everybody equally. Um, they basically have lost substantial share in, in Europe. And so the bull thesis is EVs will dominate the world and Tesla will dominate EVs. And then the one market that is the most progressive, i.e. EU, um, the legacy automotive makers are eating their lunch. If you look at Norway, the Audi e-tron is outselling the entirety of Tesla by a wide margin. I, it baffles me that people still think that somehow this is a hundred billion dollar company. Yeah. The, uh, 
That that definitely makes sense. Uh, all right, last question on the bowl theories. Uh, there's one that people talk about a lot. It's kind of the long term energy flywheel. They say that they're you know people are going to have the Tesla solar panels. They're going to connect it to their Tesla batteries, and they're going to connect it to their Tesla car, and it's going to be a self sustaining uh, clean energy system. Does is that ever viable, or is that just something that's going to take just hundreds of billions or maybe not hundreds of billions but tens and tens of billions of capex and it's not even the technology might not even be there yet uh you, you might be surprised to find out that i strongly believe it won't ever be viable okay um i should say i'm pro ev in the sense that i do think there's some advantages to um removing the distributed emissions that come from the transportation choices we make and concentrating all the emissions at the electricity generation plant, which makes it a far easier problem to sort of capture the carbon and deal with the pollution um, there. The vast majority of, um, not the vast majority, the plurality of our energy sources for electricity in the U.S. still come from coal. Um, And so there is also this sort of um, attractiveness towards the concept of having solar on your roof and then feeding a battery and then charging your car to get it. Um, from an economics perspective, it'll never make sense. Um, so solar is still prohibitively expensive compared to, you know, centralized power generation. And if you were to do solar, I think a far more efficient way to do it is sort of in large centralized plants. Um, but even then, it doesn't really compete. Wind, um, as a renewable resource, has the challenge of calibrating the electricity flows to the market demand. Um, and and I have a lot of experience in the wind sector. It used to call on the producers of um, windmills in China. And um, that's a long story, but basically there were so many windmills made all at once and nobody really thought about how to integrate all these things into the grid that they stopped making windmills all of a sudden because it was, it was too destabilizing. These are all the nuances that, that appear when you go from seductive idea on paper into real world implementation. And these are the exact types of nuances that Elon and the people that don't have expertise tend to just wave their hands and say, oh, that's just, that's a solvable problem. So let me give you one, one example of how I knew Elon was, was spewing nonsense that day in 2016. Um, in terms of the, one of the biggest challenges for solar roof, for example, which is one of the three legs of the stool that you just articulated as the long-term vision for Tesla. Um, that's a really tough market to penetrate. Um, there's value chain captains in that market called construction companies. And um, the roofing industry is kind of a tough one. Um, the, the labor skill is, uh, let's say it's mixed. Um, the number one thing that a contractor is worried about is completing the job well and honoring their warranty. The last thing they want is any headaches. Um, once they're done building the home, they're on to building the next home. The, the person that you have to sell through to reach the consumer for new builds is a construction company. Um, and then the cost of retrofitting your roof to a solar roof, as we're finding out now, is several tens of thousands of dollars. And the vast majority of people just aren't willing to put that money up front when they can just plug their car into a wall and get electricity right away. Um, so I, I should say, like, I'm actually quite pro-environmentalism. I, I drive myself a, a Chevy Volt, uh, which I think is a superior technical solution to a full BEV. The Chevy Volt, for those that don't know, is a plug-in hybrid. It gets 40 to 60 miles of pure EV range before the backup engine would kick in. I have no range anxiety and 98% of my miles are driven um, on the electric battery. And I just plug it in every night in my garage right into the wall. So I have substantially reduced the carbon 
footprint of my transportation choices to the extent that I've at least removed it from being distributed out of my tailpipe and, and instead have it still be concentrated where we, we make our electricity at these large facilities. But, you know, battery storage is a low margin commodity business around the world. And just because you slap a Tesla logo on it doesn't mean that suddenly it's going to be high margin. If you look at the numbers, um, the Tesla storage business is something like 5 to 10% gross margin. Um, and then when we talk about high gross margin business, Tesla has a radically different definition of gross margin than all of its competitors. And there's a lot of evidence that there's some aggressive accounting going on, um, stretching the interpretations of GAAP that allows them to have on paper a headline gross margin number that by the time you uh, work your way down to the bottom line, it all disappears. And 17 years in existence, they've never turned an annual profit. Um, they've certainly grown. Uh, there's no question about that. There's more people that want the Model 3 than I anticipated would, given the build quality. Um, but even that, I think, is, is starting to become exhausted. So, no, I, I, the long-term vision of a solar roof with a battery pack on the wall and an electric vehicle in your car is so far from economically viable today that the addressable market is puny and limited to very wealthy people that want to um, flex their environmental uh, you know, their environmental, um, you know, the word I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating because that sells like that, like the consumer hears that and it's like, it, that's a brilliant idea. And I think that kind of embodies the, the, the salesman, salesman that Elon's come out to be. Um, it's well, a veneer. I mean, it's a veneer and you don't have to go. So for example, just one small example, forgive me. Um, go ahead. He talks about, solar powered superchargers, you know, uh, you with a pencil and a grade 11 physics class can very quickly determine that that is utter nonsense. Literally, I mean, unless you're willing to make just the, the, it's just nonsense. He said it early on, he was called out for it for years and he still says it today that, you know, they will have solar powered superchargers and, you know, we're just going to take the energy for free from the sun. You just can't do it. It makes no sense. The, the area that you would need would be massive. Um, you know, people don't understand the difference between electricity and power. And this, these are the types of, this is the classic sign of sort of a, of a huckster. Like he knows that people don't understand the nuance between electricity and power. And that's exactly where he decides to manipulate. And after a while, if you see it in every single vertical that he's in, um, right you begin to see a pattern and then you have sort of a, a true understanding of what's actually going on. And so, uh, no, uh, it's, it's just, it's everything about this company is nonsense, including that. Okay. So I want to pivot to some, uh, some more underfollowed topics regarding Tesla. And one of those is the solar city lawsuit. Um, I think the lawsuit came in 2016 uh, during their acquisition of solar city what has this ended up resulting in what's uh, it's obviously still going on. What's it progressed to and how do you see it ending? It's a complex topic. Um, and for the benefit of the listeners, I'm not an attorney. I have lots of attorney friends who are skeptical of Tesla that I've consulted with. Um, the, the lawsuit that you're referring to is, is just one of what I presume will be several. Um, it's an important one. It's called a derivative lawsuit uh, where basically um, shareholders in Tesla are suing board members for 
breach of fiduciary. Um, and that has is working its way through the Delaware courts. And I, I think the damage in that lawsuit is not so much um, the direct impact of that lawsuit. It's more the consequences of what a negative result for the Tesla board members would mean for other lawsuits, civil lawsuits that are in the pipeline. Um, the status on that case is all the board directors except for Elon have settled and Elon is going to fight it. But the case has been postponed. It's in Delaware. Uh, the, the case has been postponed because of the COVID virus. The case itself flows from what I think is one of the most egregious self-dealing bailouts uh, in the history of corporate America and goes back to the end of 2015 into the beginning of 2016. Solar City, um, Elon is the chair of the board and the largest shareholder. He's also the chair of the board of Tesla and the largest shareholder in Tesla. And he's also one of the founders of SpaceX. And all three of these things are commingled in a way that if any one of them collapsed, all three would probably fall onto themselves. And so um, what you had was Solar City was basically going bankrupt. Um, the, the court documents and testimony and and other other evidence that have been made public by by my good friend Aaron Greenspan at, at Plainsight show pretty definitively that in the late fall of 2015, early 2016, Solar City was insolvent. And the problem that Elon faced was not just reputationally, and not just that he owned 20% uh, of Solar City and had pledged much of that stock uh, for loans with various banks. Um, the real problem was that SpaceX uh, owned a couple hundred million dollars plus of Solar City bonds. And so you have this three company nexus that Elon sits in the middle of. Um, SpaceX was on the uh, on the losing end of Solar City bonds. Uh, Elon Elon owned a bunch of stock and had pledged it. And then um, you know, so the the most valuable entity in in that nexus was Tesla and Tesla stock. And so he um, bailed out Solar City in an all stock deal using Tesla equity as currency to preserve the empire. And the the lawsuit flows from people that own Tesla stock prior to that deal saying that this was sort of self-dealing. And um, and I think anybody but Elon, it would be obvious and they would um, there would be substantial consequences. But as we've seen over and over and over again, um, Elon effectively gets to be above the law. But the Solar City lawsuit um, is rehashing basically an old transaction from 2016 that when pressed against the wall, um, Elon use Tesla stock to buy Solar City. And by the way, back to my realization, the solar roof was, I believe, fabricated um, because the shareholder support for that deal was waning. The stock price of Solar City was well below the bid. And he decided he needed to do something to convince investors to vote for the deal. And the thing he decided to do was uh, fabricate a solar roof product. I, there's literally no difference between what he did that day that, and and Elizabeth Holmes standing up with uh, a fake blood test. Um, they're the same thing. And by the way, if you doubt me, you can go watch the video on YouTube. And the way you can tell they're fake is there's no wires on the back of the tiles. <laughs> they they got to be plugged into something. How are you harvesting the energy? It's literally just a tile with something that looks like a solar cell in it. Um, they're pretty. Um, the other thing is that the entire presentation was done on the set of Desperate Housewives. I mean, you, you can't make this up. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, in the middle of an existential threat to his entire empire, he did what he did. And, you know, 
full marks to him. It's worked. The stock's uh, you know, still at ridiculously high valuation today, and everybody still thinks he's a genius. And he's defeated the SEC, and he's defeated Vern, Z- Vern Unsworth, and he probably feels like he's going to defeat the Solar City lawsuit. Um, he's above the law. All right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is one of the largest backstories that, you know, shows where we've gotten to today. But one of the other things is Elon's uh, margin loans. I know these aren't, I mean, maybe they are public, but there's just a lot of rumors around there. Are there any facts about him having margin loans where he bought, um, I think, a couple of houses? And is there any like impact that could have on the Tesla stock or business? So there's no direct knowledge. As you say, these are private transactions. I think um, coming out of the market correction and the, I think the market crash and the Fed rescue of the markets, one of the things that uh, I hope that the regulators take a hard look at is is this practice of margin loans. Um, I can give a bit of an education. So um, if you're a majority shareholder or you're a shareholder with a large um capital gain on your stock, um, you don't necessarily want to sell your stock and pay the taxes on it. And you don't necessarily want to sell your stock and cede voting control over your corporation. And so a loophole that Wall Street banks have created for such executives and founders um, is that they can borrow money from the banks and then pledge their stock as collateral um, in exchange for that loan. And then they could spend that money um, and all they really need to make sure is that the value of their stock doesn't drop. Otherwise, they might get a margin call. And um, it's a bit of a nuance of banking, but if you get a margin call, you have to satisfy it. And one of the ways you can satisfy it is to pledge more stock. And another way that you can satisfy it is to put more money in your account. Um, or a third way that you can satisfy it is to just let the bank sell your stock. Um, so we just had that happen in another um, stock that has collapsed in in um, in about a fraud, which is Lunkin Coffee, this Chinese ADR that was listed in the U.S. as symbol as LK. Stock uh, was called out by Muddy Waters, who's a great short seller and fraud detector, as being a fraud. And the, the chairman of Lincoln Coffee had pledged his stock to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and uh, among other banks. And uh, those banks were left holding the bag because when he got his margin call, when um, the fraud was uncovered and the stock collapsed. You just simply gave them the shares as part of the deal. Like here, you can have my stock. Um, we know that Elon has pledged stock for loans. Um, we know that indirectly by reading the transcripts of various depositions. And we know in particular that his brother, Kimball Musk, who sat on the board of all three of the companies, I believe, SpaceX, um, Tesla, and Solar City. I'm not 100% sure on Solar City, but he was a large shareholder of, of all three. And during late 2015 and early 2016, he was getting margin calls from his loans. And that's all in black and white in the depositions. And um, was uh, very concerned about the stock price of all three. And of course, he sat on the board of Tesla and, and part of the Delaware lawsuit originally, you know, one of the complaints of the plaintiffs was that he was clearly conflicted. The board was conflicted. This was a, this was not an arm's length transaction. It was a a, clearly a a self-dealing bailout. Um, So we know for a fact that Kimball received many margin calls, the exact nature and extent of Elon's pledging of his stock is, is not widely known. Occasionally you get a glimpse of it when they do a raise um, because the amount that he has pledged with the banks that are leading the raise is usually disclosed. Um, but there's no question that he does it. And there's no question that in 
many instances where you see a precipitous decline in a stock um, forced selling by officers who have such margin loans often exacerbates the decline. Um, in the Tesla story, I think it's a bit of a boogeyman. We've, we've sort of often wondered where his uh, margin loan cutoff would be. He has so much stock and he owns so much in Tesla that I suspect um, the stock price that he needs to uh, fend off is much lower than maybe some, some people hope. Uh, Underfollow topic is this random acceleration of vehicles. Uh, I know the National Highway Traffic uh, Safety Administration had or was reviewing a petition that named uh, or that claimed Tesla models are prone to like sudden acceleration. Has this resulted in anything? What What's happened with it? Yeah, so there's a, um, uh, a fellow by the name of Brian Sparks on Twitter that put together a really comprehensive um, submission to the NHTSA around sudden acceleration events. It was well over 100 complaints in the database, which if you look at the statistics makes seems to make Tesla be five to seven times more likely to, to have one of those events. Um, I'm not very hopeful. I, I, one of the things that has perennially disappointed me is just the fecklessness of our regulators uh, in this whole saga. Um, the NHTSA in particular is either utterly um, incompetent or totally corrupted. There's no other way to explain how they've looked the other way over and over again on autopilot. And in fact, um, an expose by a reporter recently kind of proved that they not, they effectively um, knowingly manipulated the data in Tesla's favor on autopilot safety. I don't know why the regulatory body that would actively run cover for Elon and Tesla is suddenly going to, you know, um, spin ankles and come down hard on them on sudden unintended acceleration. But um, it's hard. I've read all of those uh, reports raw. Uh, it's hard to, to read all of those and not come to a conclusion that there is an issue here. Uh, although I, it's, it's outside of my zone of expertise. But if you do read all 110 or so reports, there seems to be a substantial pattern of you know people slowly pulling into a parking spot with their foot on the brake and then the car just goes from you know zero to 60 miles an hour in, in three seconds. Um, one of the things that's always irked me about Tesla since um, I've started studying it is this, you know, you wrap yourself in the veneer environmentalism, but these are basically very heavy missiles that have amazing acceleration potential, which is how they sell the cars. Um, and then there's a fire hazard too when they crash. There's a lot of Tesla fires and things like that. Um, and in my mind, like you can't be pro-environment and care about zero to 60 times. Um, these things are just incongruent. I don't understand why, um, you know, having a car that accelerates zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds somehow makes you um, an environmental warrior. Um, and then there's a downside to that, which is the sudden unintended acceleration. So if my volt suddenly and unintendedly accelerates, there's, there's only so much damage it can do, you know, um, whereas these missiles, they just fly by and they crash and they catch fire. And it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. But um, if you're thinking about, you know, from an investor perspective, um, I've always quite, I think, um, I've come to learn the hard way that waiting on regulatory intervention with this stock and this person is, uh, is a fool's errand. Right, right. Uh, that that is for sure. All right, last uh, unfollow, underfollow topic here. Uh, that is the relationship Elon Musk and Tesla has with the Chinese Communist Party, and then also uh, the Shanghai factory contract, and maybe some of the details with those. Because I think 
uh, from the overview I've looked at it, they're very, very interesting. The Chinese Communist Party, I, I happen to know a fair bit about China. I travel there a lot. Um, I have many friends there. I, I make a significant distinction between the people of China and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I love the people of China. I love my friends in China. And I hate the Chinese Communist Party. I think they're very corrupt. Um, for whatever reason, I think I understand it. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has embraced Elon and Tesla in a way that is utterly unprecedented for Western companies and probably unprecedented for even state-owned companies. Um, but from an analysis perspective, when I look at Tesla, I sort of draw two boxes. I draw China and I draw the rest of the world. And if you're buying Tesla stock today, you're really buying the rest of the world. I view the China entity as self-contained. So it's funded with local currency. The salaries are paid in local currency. The car is paid for in local currency. So the revenue is all local. And it's very, very notoriously difficult for Western-based companies to pull money out of China. Um, this is an intra-China plant that is built by and serves the Chinese economy. And if he created a billion dollars in value there, which I don't think he will, you wouldn't be able to pull it out and pay bills in America um, based on that value is, is the way I look at it. That's just my model. Um, of course, you know, literally it's not quite that way. But, um, and so I view Tesla, the entity that you're buying when you buy Tesla stock as the plant in Fremont, the plant in Nevada, and the plant in New York, and the forest in Germany. That's sort of what you're buying. Um, but from Elon's perspective, China serves a very important purpose, which is it allows him to sort of consolidate both the financials and the delivery numbers and make it look like that next leg of growth is real. Um, and, and he certainly used it for that end. Like just, for example, today we learned that, you know, they delivered 10,160 cars ostensibly in China, but it looks like they all went to wholesale. Um, and so if, if did he sell them to an entity that's related? We don't know. Like China is just sort of a black box. They have different accounting standards. Um, the government can put their thumb on the scale for companies in a way that um, is unfamiliar to Western investors um, that are used to investing in domestic companies. So I, I, I haven't spent a bunch of time analyzing the contract per se, other than I know it was very favorable to the Chinese Communist Party. I suspect that um, that is a sort of a self-contained entity. And uh, I just sort of put it to the side. And I spent a lot more time as an analyst looking at how Fremont is doing and how Nevada is doing and how New York is doing and the speed with which they're going to build this, allegedly build this plant in Germany. That's sort of the, the where I limit my analysis. Because it's a, if it's a black box and I can't understand it and it's self-contained, then I don't spend too much time analyzing it. So when we look at uh, sort of the coronavirus impact on uh the uh, the factories. There's been a little bit of rule bending by Elon, obviously, um, but they, I believe, they are not operating uh, right now. And there's had to be some cost cutting, obviously, with the salary cuts that we that came out. I think it was uh, this this last week. Yeah. Um, how long do you think these factories can stay idle before they're going to have to raise more money? Well, there's sort of a bunch of questions buried in there, and I'll, I'll try to unpack them. So. Yes, um, the plant is currently not producing vehicles. Um, there is some reports of um, Elon smartly taking advantage of the plant shutdown to upgrade some facilities. Lord knows they need it, if you've seen any of the pictures of, of the tent. Um, by the way, I just have to say, um, 
the realization for many automotive automotive manufacturing experts has been, you know, him bragging about the alien dreadnought, automated manufacturing, the plant's going to operate so fast that you need a strobe light to see it. Uh, you contrast that um, what was sold to investors in various raises in 2016 and before to basically hand making low quality cars in the tent. Um, so there's anything that captures the essence of the Tesla story, it's that. But um, back to the factory, they're not making cars. Um, we heard this week that the tentative restart date is May 4th, which would be the day after the California um, shelter-in-place order is currently scheduled to expire. Um, if that gets extended, it'd be interesting to see whether Elon gets an exception to that. He's in a bit of a pickle. Now, ostensibly, you shouldn't need to raise if you believe the financials. I happen to not believe the financials. But if you believe the financials, he has a lot of liquidity. Um, liquidity. He started uh, the quarter with uh, Q1 with $6 billion plus in cash, and raised another $2 billion in a very well-timed equity deal. Congrats to him. Um, but, you know, the, the working capital needs of an automotive manufacturer with zero revenue coming in become pretty pronounced. And in particular, he's got a real problem, which is um, almost all of his sales come, almost all, 60% of his sales say come in the last three weeks of the quarter. And a lot of that is because of logistics. So he makes a car in Fremont, he's got to ship it to Europe. We have very good intelligence on and tracking data on these large ships, uh, row, row ships, roll on, roll off. Um, you can see how many they're loading and where the ships are. It takes about 23 days to get a ship from San Francisco to Zuberg in, in Europe. And then they have to, they have to make them. They have to bring them to the port. They have to load them on the ship. Then the ship has to sail 23 days and then they have to get unloaded. And then they got delivered to the customers. So the, the cash conversion cycle of that is, is pretty far stretched. Um, and so I think if the plant doesn't open, soon, like if it, it needs to open May 4th, they could basically lose the entire quarter in Europe um, just because of the length of that logistics supply chain. Um, there's a few thousand extra cars left over from Q1 that haven't sold in Europe. And then there's the question of demand. Um, and so the whole narrative around Tesla has been that they're sold out and there's infinite demand. And you know the demand for the Model 3 is a million cars a year. Um, we're running on, I think probably... I mean, just kind of be seven straight quarters now of essentially flat sales, um, despite, you know, all the new models and the Model 3 SR Plus and the introduction of the Model Y. You know, the Model Y, from all the data sensing we have right now, um, has been a flop. Uh, you can order a Model Y today and get it delivered in like two days. We've got lots of anecdotal evidence of that in the U.S., um, Think back of when the Model 3 rolled out, how long they were legitimately sold out. They had multiple years of, of a waiting list of people waiting to buy those cars. Um, the true run rate demand for Tesla, I don't believe was ever anywhere near what it was sold to be. And then now you layer in on top of that what I think is going to be the greatest financial crisis that we're going to see in our generation. Um, I don't know how they survive regardless of if they raise. Um, there's just nobody buying cars right now. Are you buying a car? Are you thinking about buying a car? If you're going to buy a car, you're going to buy an EV. Um, let's just say you're a consumer and you're thinking about buying a car. All of the legacy OEMs are sitting on inventory too. They're going to drastically cut prices. Um, the used car market's going to collapse. They have a, an enormous amount of residual value guarantees for cars that they've sold in the past, largely fleet deals. 
um, and lease deals to make it more attractive to the people to buy the cars at the time to make their delivery numbers back then. All of those borrowing from the future are going to come due here. Um, and that all works great if you're growing, but if you're slow and it, 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 it tends to put the brakes on pretty quick. And so he's in a very desperate spot. Uh, it baffles the mind that the stock is worth more than $100 billion. Um, not that he takes any advice from me. I would sell every single dollar of equity I could immediately um, above $100 a share and um, sit there with a big pot of cash in the bank and hunker down. That he doesn't baffles me. Um, you know, if the plant doesn't open uh, May 4th, let's just say it's even one week or two week delay from there, he will miss the entire Q2 in Europe, seed more and more of that market to OEMs that are mandated to sell EVs in Europe. Um, and there's woefully insufficient demand to support the entirety of Fremont in the U.S. Uh, we've seen that already that, you know, basically the demand for cars in the U.S. has flatlined to decline long before COVID. You mix in COVID um, and I don't see it now. The government could do another cash flow clunkers. I fully expect them to, but it's not like the other OEMs aren't going to participate in that. Um, the competition is real. And the other thing that the bulls confuse is, um, let's say GM and Ford file for bankruptcy. Those entities don't go away. It's going to wipe out the equity. The bondholders are going to take over the company. They might shut a few plants, but they're going to keep building cars. Um, the UAW is going to get rescued by the government. Tesla's a non-union plant. Um, you know, the, the, the unions are still a, a powerful political force. So, you know, if Ford and GM go bankrupt, that's not victory for Tesla. That's a loss for Tesla because they're going to be incentivized to monetize their inventory as quickly as possible and convert it into cash, which means they're going to cut price. And so if you're a consumer and you want to buy a car, you're going to buy a fully priced, mediocre, poor build model for your Model Y, or are you going to go buy a brand new car from a company that um, knows how to build vehicles uh, for the long haul? And so the, the, the classic, you know, Tesla's better than GM and Ford. I'm not long GM or Ford. I think the automotive business is a terrible business. Um, and I, I just don't know how Tesla survives, you know, an extended plant shutdown without exposing all of the uh, bombs that are on their balance sheets. So, yeah, it's, I'm fascinated to watch it. If you would have told me that the plant would be shut down for at least the first five weeks of Q2 after delivering a sequential decline in deliveries of something like 25% and the stock would still be above $100 billion of market cap, I... I baffles the mind but it is what it is the stock is just disconnected from reality yeah it's uh, i mean it, it's shocking it's probably the most shocking ticker yeah of the last few months here or a few weeks i guess uh but one more question about tesla uh before we hit our wrap-up ones i know there's a lot of variables going on so a lot of different ways could play out here but how do you see this story ending well there's an old expression that says um it's better to flame out than fade away and I, I don't expect him to fade away. So if it does end, I expect it to be quick. Um, I expect that, you know, you'll wake up on Monday and Tesla will be absurdly overvalued and you'll wake up on Friday and he will have filed um, or some other major scandal will have brought him down. Um, I don't think given the economic calamity that we're facing that he will reach escape velocity on this and somehow be able to, you know, keep the perpetual motion machine that is Tesla going indefinitely certainly kept it going much longer than any skeptic could have imagined. So hats off to him, but I don't see it ending slowly. Yeah. And that's the thrill of owning uh, derivatives on Tesla is that any day 
something drastic could happen. Neither uh, um, we have two wrap-up questions here, and they're more broad. They're not really necessarily about Tesla. Um, I'll hit the first one. Brett can have the second one. So the first one here is, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? So it's a good question. Um, I would say in the current environment, the one financial saying that I'm, I now disagree with is don't fight the Fed. I think um, we're seeing headlines of trillions of dollars of government intervention in various markets. I think they're pushing on a rope. I think they're shaking their fist at an oncoming tsunami of economic destruction, the likes of which uh, will be generationally remembered. I think um, the shutdown of the U.S. economy and the global economy, for starting with the Chinese economy, is going to have profound, profound impact on the, the economy itself and how we define it. Um, to be clear, I view the economic destruction that we're about to face as um, inevitable, and I view COVID as just the catalyst. But historically, whenever we would confront uh, a crisis like the financial crisis, um, the phrase is don't fight the Fed which means, you know, if the Fed comes out and says they're going to bid everything up, then you, you go alongside them and you, and you buy. Um, that might work for a little bit here. And the, stocks, the stock market's had a nice run. We're recording this at the end of the week. Um, who knows what will happen by the time you release it. But by and large, I think the era of don't fight the Fed um, is coming to an end. And I, I think I, it's hard for me to envision scenarios where we don't ultimately debase the currency. And, and um, you can own... Uh, you know, the Venezuelan stock market did really great in Venezuelan dollars. Um, didn't mean that you wanted to hold your assets in it. Uh, and, I, and I worry that that's one expression that new investors might fall victim to, which is don't fight the Fed. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, all right. Last question here. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone starting out in either the business or the investing world? I, I come from the business world, so I probably would answer that, that vector. Um, Here's the most important advice that I give, and I mentor a lot of people, and in, in our business, we interact with a lot of leaders. Um, the single biggest asset you have is the present value of your future earnings. And so it's way more important to develop your skills and to embrace opportunity than it is to bargain over an extra nickel in salary and leave a bad taste in the mouth of somebody who's trying to give you a formative experience and a leg up in the long term. So um, when I was starting out in the business world, um, I never negotiated salary or benefits or anything. I was always just focused on what is the very best opportunity that I can get that will teach me something. Who are the smartest people I can learn from? What is my skill set and what is that repertoire and what can I do to improve it? And so I spent a lot more time fine-tuning the engine than um, running the engine, so to speak. Um, I, I was I very, very much focused on skill development. Um, data analysis, visualization, networking, giving to your network, um, learning a new language, learning how to code, um, learning Photoshop skills, learning how to communicate, becoming a professional public speaker. Um, the very best asset you have as a young person is the present value of your future earnings. And the number one driver of that parameter is how much time are you spending developing skills? Um, so when I look at the young person, um, you know, the two main questions that drive future value creation that will swamp any sort of variance of pay and bonus and vacation time that you might get in your current job is how much time are you spending developing your skills and how effective are you at getting new skills? Um, and so a really sort of the masterclass in 
developing a, a great business career is to become really good at developing skills, a sort of a meta analysis. And if you can do that and you, you know, apply a solid work ethic behind it and you have a great mistake management system, uh, it's almost inevitable that you will, you will do quite well in business regardless of the stock market and currency debasement and the price of gold and everything else. So if you're thinking 20, 30, 40 year time frame, your skills, um, skills, 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 skills. Yeah. Sort of that invest in yourself model. Um, well, that's going to do it. Uh, thank you TC for coming on. I uh, really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. It's been great. Uh, come back. Uh, come back anytime. Okay. Welcome back. Thanks again to Tesla charts TC for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. Um, but next up we have option Kings. Are we going to be rich again? <laughs> uh, there's a small chance, I think, uh, but this is another uh, what like decision we made. A uh, small amount of money, like just about a you know hundred bucks, which is still a decently small amount of money. Uh, to for like an outcome that's probably not that likely, but if it happens, uh, it could be a large out like you know a large reward. Right. So we bought one put of Alibaba. Um, and I'm gonna be totally honest. If Luckin hadn't gone, if Luckin hadn't been revealed as like a fraud, I we would probably wouldn't have bought this. Yeah, and I guess the thesis is, if the Chinese economy goes into shambles, and which it looks like it's it's heading towards, you know, pretty bad scenario, which is kind of weird. It doesn't, I don't know, the st- stock market there, stock market here doesn't seem like it's pricing in anything right now. But that's a whole another story. Uh, if that happens, and then uh, oh, a lot of people, smart people, you know, there's a lot of anonymous people, I guess, on Twitter that have been saying this, but they've been talking about how Alibaba is likely faking their GMV numbers, and there's a lot of evidence to back that up. Um, I think I did tweet a couple links uh, earlier, but if that happens, like the economy goes into shambles, Alibaba is going to have a lot of trouble uh, keeping up these, you know, fifty percent revenue numbers, twenty-five percent growth in GMV, while they already have the same GMV as Amazon and Walmart, which just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, so if that happens, and they just, go ahead. Combined, that's that's the same revenue as or GMV as Amazon and Walmart combined, right? Yeah, uh, which doesn't make much sense to me because uh, Walmart is the leading retailer in almost every country, and Amazon's either one or two, uh, or actually it's probably two in every other country besides China or some of the Southeast Asian countries and Japan. But yeah, if that's true, and it comes out that they are fraudulent, I guess is the word for it, which we don't know for sure, uh, we'd probably peg at a, what do you think, like a 20, 30% chance. If that's true... A little lower than that, but yeah. Yes, it's a small chance, but if it's true... Uh, the outcome could be like 50x because the options are not priced uh, very expensively at all. So we decided to do that, have a little fun with some of the podcast money, and it's gonna. I think it'll be exciting, or it'll just go to zero, and uh, you know it'll be fun either way. But yeah, I mean, okay. So this is and this is basically all our options is low probability, high return, um, and it's all ad revenue. So it's basically you guys listening hopefully provide some entertainment for you guys and hopefully it makes us rich in the process. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quote, 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 unquote, rich a uh, hundred bucks, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, hot water though. I've got a few this week. Uh, okay. Three, I believe. Go ahead. Here, let me pull it up. 
Um, okay, the first one, Iger haters are in hot water, and I was one of them, so I'm in hot water. Uh, everyone said him leaving amidst the coronavirus, coronavirus was kind of like a scummy move. He's back, I believe, this morning. He's the CEO. He, he took it back, right? Yeah, either. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm, after I sold my shares at Disney, um, I stopped following that as much, but I think he did come back and what was it? Either he's sincerely coming back because he cares a lot, uh, which is probably true, or the board like forced him back. It's like, hey, like you left at just the worst time. Like you, you should come back. It was a little bad for like uh, both Disney's reputation and his own. And I think maybe this is his chance to sort of salvage that. Um, second one, though, and I'm stealing a quote the Raven take here from Twitter. Dalio's in hot water because Burning Man was canceled. Uh, I had this too, yeah. <laughs> tough, tough, tough. And then the third one, and this was hilarious. Uh, Bill Gates is in hot water because John McAfee, who to this day, I don't know who he is or what he does, said that he met Bill Gates once and that Bill Gates named his company Microsoft after the size and condition of his penis. Who of my a McAfee's penis of, of Bill Gates, <laughs> Microsoft. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a good it, joke. But who he, is, who is this guy? Uh, I, th- I think he's the founder of McAfee, the security thing. Uh, but he's just an absolute psycho. He said he's a huge Bitcoin guy. He was totally into the Bitcoin. Uh, probably you know, de- dealing with some fraud during the Bitcoin heyday. Uh, he said that he would, if Bitcoin didn't hit a billion by the end of either, th- or no, sorry, a million dollars a coin by either the end of this year or last year, he'd cut off his own dick. Um, so I don't think that's happening. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he's actually going to cut off his own dick, obviously, but yeah, he's an absolute psycho. Um, and I really want to know the story behind it. Okay, those are my only two hot waters. What do you have? All right, I got the XFL. So they are bankrupt, which is just kind of some sports news. But the WWE owner, uh, Jim McMahon, who also owns the XFL, I believe, he said on an old conference call that the WWE would not fund the XFL. But the bankruptcy papers that came out today uh, claimed that the WWE owned 23% of it. Uh, Looks like we're going to have some lawsuits coming down the line a lot of illegal activity going down in the financial markets or at least it was going on and it's now coming to fruition okay question for you do you think the xfl may have survived had coronavirus not happened oh yeah it seemed decently popular on tv deals and stuff uh but i don't think that's like espn or whoever fox sports uh definitely not their priority at the moment okay what else do you have uh, Oyo, that hotel startup in the Vision Fund that we have been talking about before that did not have the best uh, model for their business, or at least we didn't think so, and it looked a little similar to WeWork. Uh, they are going through some tough times. They're laying off like 50% or furloughing 50% of their workforce. And as you can probably say, you know they're a hotel chain uh, startup. So like Airbnb or something like that, they're probably absolutely screwed. They're, you know, probably 90% of their revenue is down. But another note here that could get them into some extreme trouble, the founder borrowed $2 billion to buy more of the, the company's own shares in their last round that was valued at $10 billion, <laughs> uh, which was marking up the Vision Fund's own investment. Poor uh, Keith Raboy. Isn't he an investor? Keith Raboy, yeah, dude. I, I don't know. I think I, 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 I can't 
deal with the stupid VCs right now. Not all VCs are stupid, but the whatever ones. Uh, next one. Uh, I don't even know if this is hot water, but remember there, there was that screenshot of uh, the Dow up record high and then like 16 million unemployed, right? And people, yes. you know, like even like AOCs and politicians were getting into it. Did you see that there is a public company called Bioanal Systems? Yeah, so I think it was like, I don't know if that was just what they were projecting on that little ticker line because I think it's bio like analytics or analytics. it's still I like that's too close. <laughs> like uh, yeah, I was laughing. I saw I saw the Ram Capital tweet. I was laughing pretty hard. That was unfortunate uh, spelling. Whoever maybe the CNBC uh, cryon person or whatever that thing's called uh, should be fired. It's the spring interns. Yeah, spring interns suck. Uh, they're working from home. They didn't okay. know what to do. What uh, what else do you have? Okay, last one here. Uh, the SPY, uh, which is the largest ETF, I believe, uh, it is skipping its quarterly rebalance. I don't get that. This th- so this actually triggered me. This made me really angry. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because it's like it's it's the principle of passive investing, like. The fact that someone has the ability to choose just to not do something, it's like, come on, like this is, it's it's undermining the principle, which makes me so angry. Yeah, the, I think, you know, I but I didn't really get when people used to say there is no such thing as passive investing. And now I, I guess I kind of agree because whoever is running these funds, they always have to make the choice of what to do. And they're not, you know, they're not forced to do anything or maybe they're forced to do some things. But there is, I guess there isn't any such thing as passive investing. You're just investing in things called passive you know, ETFs or index funds. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, that definitely pissed me off. Um, fuck, Mary kill, though, this week. The th- that was your last one, right? Yeah. Okay, fuck, Mary kill, this week is the, the theme of stocks I'm actually considering buying. Um, so maybe a little assistance here would be nice. Okay. I've got three here, Atlassian, Spotify, and MongoDB. Ooh, let me look up. Uh, let me look. I know where Spotify's trading, but let me look up where Atlassian is. I think I'll marry Spotify just because that's the. It's probably one of my top two or three. Um, but let's see where Atlassian's at. Uh, it's it's really not down that much, but I don't know. I I would say throw them aside because I think MongoDB has a, a longer. Uh, runway for growth but as a shareholder of mongodb the shares haven't gone down very much uh so i don't think you're getting much value there right now so i'd marry spotify probably fuck mongodb even though i still like them uh for the long-term opportunity just not uh, taking over the debt database market um or at least taking a lot of the market share from oracle and microsoft so it's a giant opportunity i think 70 billion dollars a year um atlassian does have a large market opportunity and they are seem like a well-run company but uh, it's just not my favorite. I think I'm going to kill them. Yeah. Hmm. I might I might marry Atlassian because I feel like there's just a long runway there and you're marrying them for the rest of your life. Um, What's the bull? So what do they do? You've been researching them lately? So, oh God, I'm trying to blank on his name. I'm blanking on his name, but it was the Motley Fool guy wrote about like the one he's been adding to the most and it's been Atlassian, um, but I'm blanking on the name. So I feel bad not giving him credit. Yeah, they are primarily like the uh b2b like software um sorry i'm trying to think of the word for it uh 
communication slash uh, uh, like document sharing, like file sharing type of thing. Yeah, kind of like Google Drive, right? We did a show yeah. on them before. I mean, if I'm going to buy them, I'm going to sit down and probably do a little more research. But those are those are those just three names that I'm kind of looking at. Um, I might bang MongoDB too because I feel like they move the most sporadically. Spotify's like hasn't moved from my cost basis in eight months, so that's cool. Uh, as long as the business is doing well, I know. Right? It, I mean, yeah. So I don't know how, and I have no idea coronavirus's impact on streaming, but or music streaming at least. Um, yeah, so those are my three fuck my kills. Anecdotal evidence. Uh, you want me to go first or you? Uh, you can go. Okay, this is pretty relevant. So I rode in a Model X this week. First time, I, I believe it's my first time in a Tesla. Um, and it was good experience, okay? So I'm not going to lie. So it's a cool product, and he, like, stopped in the middle of the road and, like, sped up zero to 60. He did that whole thing, so... I got the whole like, oh, cool acceleration. I was not amazed by the interior, to be honest, like the the leather and the seats. Um, they've got that cool little computer looking screen, iPad looking thing in the middle. And it's got a little like, like cool knickknacks here and there, like software knickknacks. So you can like put on a fire or you can play video games while you're parked. But Polish. I did not come away thinking this is a product that could transcend gap violations like i didn't think like okay this product will take them past losing money wait yeah you're saying that they shouldn't be valued at 16 times all their competitors and that a car that sells um for whatever that you know it has all those features can't beat out mercedes bmw audi ferrari lamborghini porsche um in europe and the united states and take out all that entire market that is correct Uh, i am saying that because and, and they lose money on okay. every car they sell, but whatever. Sorry. I, yeah. I would rather drive the, that car that I was in than the car, than my Chevy Traverse or whatever I have. But that does not validate the business for me. And you know what? To tell you the truth, this was the higher, I mean, it's the Model X, which is, I believe, the higher margin vehicle compared to the Model 3. So, and it, it still didn't validate the business model for me. So, it's supposed to compete, yeah, with like a Porsche. What are those called? The Porsche Cayenne or something like that? Cheyenne. Yeah. It just didn't do it for me. Uh, but good product. I'm not going to lie. Uh, the acceleration thing was pretty cool. So that's Yeah, cool. I mean, those, yeah, the cars, um, all, there's some evidence that the Model 3 has, doesn't have the greatest quality, but the S and X, um, everyone thinks are fantastic products if it's, what, if it's the type of car you like. You know what? I will say, and I think this is why most people buy the cars, is you get cool looks when you get out of them. Oh yeah, it's the definitely what do they call that? Um Oh yeah, it's the new like Beamer. You know how people say like, you know, make fun of the guy that drives the BMW. It's the guy that drives uh Tesla's. Like you could just tell like if I got if people kind of looked when you got out and it was kind of like, "Hmm, what you know, what do you do?" kind of thing. Oh yeah, it's the uh it's And I think that's that's probably that's probably a th- I don't know, it's probably why a lot of people buy the cars. Cuz they look oh, cool. Yeah. And yeah. I guess you know, the whole don't pay for gas thing, that's nice. but Oh, not anymore. All right. Uh, what do you have? Okay. So you there was that viral clip this week, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, a VC, and he is a Tesla bull, but I tend to agree with him on pretty much everything besides that. Uh, he kind of had a viral clip on CNBC. Maybe I'll include it in here. Um, if not, whatever. I just forgot to do it. But are, are you suggesting, you keep saying propping up zombie companies. Are, are you Are you arguing to let 
airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how, how does that make sense in the broader scheme of, of the economy? Because it's not because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying like this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. But he basically said, you know, let them go to zero, let the hedge funds go to zero, let airlines go to zero. And that is the equity uh, and bailout workforces, bailout Main Street. Um, do you agree? And I know this is a topic we've talked about for the last three weeks, but it's kind of boiled over here. Hopefully the debate can end shortly. I, I doubt it will. Do you agree? Should hedge funds, hedge funds and airlines get bailed out? So when I first kind of took a look at it, I was like, all right, well, some companies need to get bailed out, all this stuff. And then I kind of, I did do some digging into bank, like what all bankruptcy entails. It wasn't a lot, but. Chapter 11 Investopedia? Investopedia? I watched some YouTube videos. Chapter 11 isn't the end of the world, right? So it doesn't kind of give you like a chance of survival. You get basically a second chance. Um, I Yeah. Bill Gurley had a great tweet on it too. This, like, you have to be able to fail. Yeah, like, okay, here's what people are like, the VCs, they're just mad because it's like, well, the VCs are mad because one, no one's ever bailed out the tech companies because they actually have good business models. And two, airlines have gone bankrupt, I think like 40 times uh, since 2004. Uh, I forget the stat. There's a, They've gone bankrupt a ton. Like, they can go bankrupt again. Right, and... That's what I mean. Like, I'm assuming they all filed Chapter 11. So, I mean, yeah, you'd let them fail. And it sounds bad, but they don't lose their jobs, right? Like, people, uh, oh, the employees man. aren't gone. There's, they don't lose it because the equity goes to zero, but there could be some second-order effects there. Uh, my thinking is, so say like, uh, all right, we know we're Boeing. There's that stat, $40 billion in share buybacks, um, which – has gotten them into trouble because they don't have the cash balance because of all the trouble they're in. My thinking is they should be forced to do raise as much equity as possible of any buybacks they've done. So say it's Boeing, you have to raise $40 billion in equity. If the stock, they can't raise equity at anything above like 60 or 50% of their current market price, uh, traded price, you know, for their stock too bad. You still have to raise it. Doesn't change the business. Um, and then after that, we can get into like bailouts and helping, you know, stuff. But right, I like that, that idea. No, I like that idea. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, sorry, I'm forgetting my take here, but I'm I'm blanking on. It. Okay, yes, I like that idea, and I think Chamath hit it right on the head. And people constantly, you're right. The the tech companies don't get bailed out. I did see a tweet or an idea that was like. You know, wouldn't you be upset if the companies were just sitting on cash the whole time waiting for a rainy day? Like, don't you want them innovating? It's like, yeah, okay, I would. You know what? If I'm investing in a company, I do want them. I want a little bit of liquidity on the side, but I want them constantly investing back into the business. But buybacks isn't investing back into the business. Yeah. Also, Wimbledon bought pandemic insurance because if something like this happened, they would have been screwed. Airlines... I mean, I the think, information was out there. I'm not an executive. I shouldn't have known, but they should have known. Why not no, buy some pandemic insurance? It was out there. Companies, I bet more companies will now, obviously. But yeah. yeah. I mean, it was done. Wimbledon did it. I, don't, I, I am on the let them fail side now. 
Yeah. And come on, the executives will, they're not suffering. You know who's suffering? The workers, uh, the people that are going to get, you know, the payroll that need the payroll funded, stuff like that. Main Street suffering. Wall Street can suffer and not like actually like go into poverty. Right. Okay. Well, that's going to do it then, right? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. Find us on Twitter at Chit Chat Money. Follow us wherever you're listening. Also, you can now email us. Um, well, I'm working on that right now, but uh, we had a little hiccup with that. You can email us at chitchatmoney at gmail.com. I'm hoping, if not, I will revise it, put it out on Twitter, and next fundamental analysis episode, I'll let you know what the email actually is. Um, Thank you for listening. We're not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.